Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, a senior curator for the National Trust. And today I am heading across the border from my home in England into North Wales to visit Irvig, a once much loved family home just south of Wrexham. There are acres of parkland to explore at Irvig and its formal gardens have been fully restored. But today I'll be taking a closer look at the house to see a property and its treasures that came closer than most to being lost forever. I've got a pang of excitement at seeing Irvig again. I worked there 30 years ago. It was really the beginning. It was the starting point of my career with the National Trust. Now, as a buildings and landscape curator, my job is to ensure things survive and are represented well in their original setting. I'm not, of course, always aware of all the work that has gone in beforehand to allow me to do my job. What's often helpful are archive photographs that show how a house once looked and chart the transformation of a property once it's been donated to the National Trust. But Erdig is unusual due to a BBC documentary from the 1970s about Erdig's last owner. The before is there in film, a much more tangible offering than their photos. So before I head off, I'm going to watch that video and try and get a sense of exactly what the house team was dealing with. There's Erdig, the first opening shot of Erdig sitting in its beautiful parkland. I'd guess that must be Philip York, the last squire of Erdig, in a very overgrown garden. My goodness, he's at the front of the house with, <laughs> with all those trees and shrubs overgrown. The grass is knee length. It was completely derelict, reverted to nature. We've cut to some footage of the interior, very grand room by the look of it with pictures in gold frames, but the wallpaper is falling off the wall in sheets. The plaster is collapsing, water is clearly pouring in and there's water running down the, the side of that window. Panning back into this, what looks like an astonishing bathroom with Chinese hand-painted wallpaper and the ceiling held up with pit props. I mean, the ceiling's being supported by steel bars. But to see a house in that sort of state of collapse, it's much more like sort of accident, <laughs> accident and emergency. And that perilous, precarious moment when it really could have gone. That was a great film, a super introduction. I'm itching to go. I'm longing to see that lovely place again. I'm going to get my gear together and get in the car. I sort of remember this. Good Welcome morning. I'm very pleased to be here. I've got a meeting with Suzanne. You can give her a radio for you now. That's very kind of you. Hi, Suzanne. I've got James at the ticket office for you. Thank you. I'll be right over. Now, look, this is a smiley face. Suzanne. Good morning. Baradar, James. Good morning. <laughs> I'm very pleased to meet you. Nice to meet you. I believe it's welcome back to us. It's welcome back, yes. I feel quite emotional coming back here. Well, very emotional seeing this old place again. 
I was looking at that astonishing film from the 1970s of Philip York, The Last Squire, and it was in a great state of decline, wasn't it? It was. The whole estate had really come to rack and ruin. And to try and unpick why it got to the state it was in, you have to really roll back through the history of the house. The first owner of the house built a house here at Erzig, and then very soon afterwards, he went bankrupt and left. The next owner of the house was a man called John Meller. He was a very rich and wealthy London barrister and he did a lot of work on the house and the estate. He didn't get married or have children, so he passed the house on to his nearest living relatives who were the York family. And they weren't a rich family. They inherited Erzig by a quirk of fate, really, that they had an unmarried uncle who was very wealthy. And I think inheriting here was really a double-edged sword for them. So when um, Erzig got to the early 20th century, that was really when the last marriage took place in 1902. Through that time, there was no modernisation to talk of. There wasn't electricity, it wasn't on mains water, for example. Through the 20th century, two world wars, there was no extra money coming into the estate to modernise, so that when the last two squires took over, they took over a gradually declining house. But there are other reasons why the house declined as well that we'll go on to see in a moment. In those years, before the National Trust took over, there was no money coming in, with the place getting more and more dilapidated, and there was all sorts of issues going on with the house. One of the reasons they agreed to take over is once the house has stopped sinking. Stopped sinking? Stopped sinking, yes. What do you mean, stopped sinking? Well, one of the reasons the house fell into such decline through the latter part of the 20th century is behind us, if we look across this magnificent landscape, in the middle distance, about a mile away, you can see a small hill. Yes, I can. That's very much man-made, and that's the result of mining in the area. That's the old spoil heap, or the old slag heap, of Bersham Colliery. And what happened through the 20th century was the house did actually get undermined from that colliery over there. Um, That's one of the main reasons why the house started to fall and sink and decline quite so much. I mean, it must have dropped a long way. It did, five feet. Five feet! Five feet. That is terrifying prospect. Bersham Colliery was started in 1864. It's often a surprise for people to learn that there was actually a coal industry in North East Wales. Most people think of the coal industry in Wales as being the Rhondda, Aberdeer and further south. But in fact, um, coal has been mined in North Wales since probably around prehistoric times onwards, and especially then after the 15th century. My name is Kerry Thompson. I'm curator of Big Pit National Coal Museum, which is part of the National Museums of Wales. Bersham is carrying on until the coal industry was nationalised in 1947, as were all the deep mines in Britain. Coal itself followed the local ironworks. The ironworks, of course, had a rapid growth in the later 19th century, which led to a large influx of people into the area. By 1958, there was 1,011 workers in Bersham alone. The coal field around the Wrexham area is quite narrow. It's only about nine miles wide at its widest point. Coal is laid down in seams. If you think of a, a layer cake and you've got several layers of cream in there and paint them black, you've got coal seams. You don't go down further to increase. You actually go across. And unfortunately, of course, the seam they were working was under everything hard itself. It's an astonishing story. 
And I guess, I mean, thinking of the house in very simple terms, it is a container in which all the treasure is protected. And if the house goes, what on earth would have then happened? I can't wait to see the inside. Are we going to go in now? Yeah, let's go. Let's go this way. It's very hard to see that house is closed up tight and shut and things are covered. There's a glint and a sparkle. I can see glimpses of gold. There is. We've <laughs> just come into the saloon and I'm going to give you a torch here, James, if that's all right, and we can have a closer look at things. And suddenly there is sparkle. I feel a bit like a burglar or entering Tutankhamun's tomb. So many sparkly things in here. There are long pier glasses and mirrors with ornamented gilded frames and the most sparkly and sensational chandelier that is gleaming under this light. Some of the collection at Erzig was made brand new for the house in the early 18th century and much of it is still in the house and much of it is still in this room itself. So if we start to peel back some of these covers, we'll start to unveil some of the early 18th century furniture that was made for the house. A sense of feeling that I shouldn't really be doing this. It's a great privilege. You've raised the cover on this very elaborate piece of furniture. It's a formidable key in that top drawer. What sort of goodies would have been kept inside? Well, Precious there's, perfumes. There's nothing in it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's empty now. Now look, you've lifted the cover on another astonishing thing. And inside is an array of the most astonishing China. There's plates on the bottom that um, you might have heard Philip York reference um, in the film that you watched, actually. Oh, so it's those ones, it is. Yeah, these are the ones that, that he referenced as saying his mother thought they were a little bit vulgar. So <laughs> I don't know if you can work out what he might have meant by that. There are some, there are some, there are some nude classical beauties, lots of bosoms. Well, you can see why Mrs York thought that perhaps they should be going to the back of the <laughs> back of the cabinet. <laughs> It's un unimaginable, 1973-74, that period when the house was in real danger of physically collapsing. All these things would have been dispersed, I suppose, to the antiques trade or to museums, and that resonance, that poignancy that they have now would have been evaporated and lost forever. Yeah, I think that's quite likely. These objects would have continued surviving elsewhere and in other museums, but in quite a different context, would probably have been in a really smart, newly styled gallery and very new exhibition cases. Well, you've had a good look at some of the smaller objects in this room, but of course there were other bigger objects associated with the house that would have been much more difficult to remove and find a really good home for. Mm, I'd love to see those. Should we go and have a look at yes, another room? Yes, please. We're going to come to one of the bedrooms in the house, and this is called the state bedroom. Mm. So come on in, we'll have a closer look. It's a low door. We've entered a glass box, and I'll shine my torch in and see what we've got. My goodness, we've got a bed in a state of disarray. That's right, this is the state bed in the state bedroom. You've taken all the textiles off. It is just a framework. It is at the moment. <laughs> it will look, yeah, it would have looked different when you saw it the last time you came. Oh, when... is, is this the the the, uh, the the state bed that was in the film that I saw? It Philip is. Philip York. Yeah. 
The golden, sparkly, tassel-encumbered number it is. reduced to just a skeleton. It is at the moment. <laughs> We're in the middle of a conservation project, so some of the hangings aren't here at the moment, but it wasn't the bed I was talking about. It's what's behind it. It's this Chinese wallpaper. Oh, no! That is staggering. This wallpaper, this Chinese wallpaper, was put in this room in the 1770s wow. and what this really meant for the family who installed it at the time that they could demonstrate their wealth their taste their connections around the world and also they were part of those upper echelons of society wallpaper became a big thing in britain towards the end of the 17th century I'm Emile de Brune, and I'm one of the National Trust's curators specialising in decorative arts. You really start to see advertisements from paper hangers and stationers, interestingly, advertising paper hangings, as they called them. And those seem to have been the first types of wallpaper. And then in the course of the 17th century, it keeps on developing, some of them in European styles, some of them inspired by Asia. China and Japan were seen as societies that were well-organized, that were well-established, where people were highly educated, and they were able to produce these amazing things like porcelain and lacquer, which couldn't yet be made in Europe. When the British start to import Chinese wallpapers, they were acquiring a bit of that sophistication. Initially, these Chinese wallpapers were partly so popular because they were technically and materially really sophisticated. The skill with which the images were painted and sometimes printed on these wallpapers was extremely high. The funny thing is that in China they did have wallpaper, but it was quite different to the Chinese wallpapers we imported here. In China, they tended to hang pictures and other decorations on top of the wallpaper. But this idea of pictorial wallpaper was really developed for the European market. One of the scary things, in a way, about these wallpapers, they were panoramic, so the different sheets of the wallpaper visually linked to each other, so you'd get a beautiful panoramic effect. But that did mean you had to be very precise in how you hung it. Let's have a look in this corner. You can see the edges of the paper. You yes. See where they're running yes. all the way up? Which is an overlapped seam. This is a hand-painted surface, is it? It's not a printed surface. No, that's right. All hand-painted in China. So we've got some lovely flying insects and grasshoppers in flight. And they're actually cut out and pasted on to the surface, yeah. onto the background. So basically the background layer is a sort of mottled green colour, which has got a lovely depth to it. And then on top of that are applied elements of decoration like the insect and the flowers and other things that are actually hand-painted onto the background. Yeah, it's like layers of decoration, isn't it? And I think these applied bits of decoration were very much in the hands of the wallpaper hangers as to where they added these extra motifs of flowers and insects and deciding where to put those. I mean, look at this little creature down here. What do you think that is? <laughs> Looks like a praying mantis or something, some rearing insect with rather daunting-looking front legs about to scamper off or maybe um, nibble at your ankle as you pass. 
<laughs> but it's it's absolutely delightful, isn't there? Lovely little details of insects and flowers and clumps of peonies. It's exotic and lovely, and the depth in it is so exquisite. But above your head, don't look now, an enormous bird. It looks like a pheasant or some bird of paradise is peering over your shoulder. I mean, you feel it's an encounter with nature. If we have a look at the wall in the corner here, you can see that the paint is directly onto the wall. That was quite unusual. And what was more common at the time was for Chinese paper or other expensive papers to be applied to battens. Help me, when you say a batten surface, is that rather like applying a canvas that is stretched over a frame and then attach that to the wall and then put the paper on top of that. Yeah, precisely. I see. It made a much more mobile decorative surface then if schemes were to change. We're looking at the corner at the moment and I suppose this is the corner of the room that had the most damage. So I suppose we're being quite critical on the paper in this corner because you can see some of the tears there and then sometimes within the body of the wallpaper itself you can just see some hairline where the colours perhaps come adrift but it's just literally a hairline. So it's not looking at all bad for 250 years. And in a sense, it's not the end of it, because those conditions could come back again. If the house is not maintained, we could be back to square one. Potentially, yeah. It's so important to make sure the fabric of the building is kept in really good condition, so we look after all the contents as best we can. And so far, James, we've mostly been walking around the house in the dark or semi-darkness, so you might not have noticed quite how many other wallpapers are in the house, but I'd like to share with you some more of our wallpapers a bit further on in the house if you'd like to see them. Thank you, I would love to. I didn't realise you'd got more. We've reached the attic floor, I guess. This we is have, as high yeah. as we can get in the house. Just walking down this corridor again with a very ancient oak floor. And everywhere are boxes. Boxes of things, all carefully and neatly stored and catalogued. Everything telling a story, I expect. Yeah, every single object here will have its own rich history. Let's go into this room here. I'm itching to open one of the boxes. Yeah, should we have a closer look and I see what we've got? Because we've got boxes under oh, those rackets too. Yes, we've, we've got lots of samples that aren't obvious and there's all these boxes. And the contents of these boxes, as I said, was found in parts of the house where the National Trust had to do conservation work. They were found in cupboards, they were found in tea chests and then all brought together in this room. You might like to start with a really significant wallpaper that's the earliest known dated wallpaper in the country. Really? Here? Yeah, here. it's here. <sighs> this is the paper. It's called pomegranate paper. If I get my light on it, you'll be able to see so it. So you've laid out better. on the surface on this table. That is really quite a large piece. I mean, what is that? Uh, three metres long, maybe just under a metre wide. And it's a pattern of foliage and tendrils, but pomegranates. That is absolutely lovely. And the colours. I mean, it's very rich. There's a sort of uh, a sky blue and a rich green. There are some mauves and purples against a sort of goldy background with a repeating pattern of little leaf forms. This section of wallpaper was actually found in the house in the 1970s when the conservation work was being done. And it was found behind the tapestries. Whoa. So it was hidden. Remind me of the date? Well, we think it dates to about 1720, and we know it's in that era because, highly unusually, we've got the tax stamp mark on the back 
of each one. So tax stamp. Tax stamp. Because wallpaper was taxed. It was taxed in this Queen Anne period, or the sort of 1710s was the first time this kind of tax was introduced. And this wallpaper here is the earliest known example of the tax being applied to a wallpaper. What I love about it, what I most love about this sort of thing, is that in terms of technology, the techniques are so simple. I mean, I have to say this is such a treat to see them, but it would be so lovely if they were made available in some way for people to see and enjoy. I agree, and that's one of the reasons that we're working with a modern manufacturer called Little Green to bring these papers and styles like them to the modern audience. We have a huge history of manufacturing and design in the UK. My name's Ruth Mottishead, I'm the creative director here at Little Green, and we are an independent, family-run British paint and wallpaper brand. We produce two main products, Heritage Paint and Heritage Wallpaper. My house is Victorian, it was built in 1874, and for me, it's absolutely lovely to be surrounded by wallpaper that was made at that time. So the colours are sourced by going to properties, so it could be Oxborough, it could be Felbrigg, it could be any of the National Trust properties. We go there, we take our paint analysts, and we take a reading of the paint colour, and then we reproduce the paint colour back in the lab. The wallpaper product is produced in a very similar way to the paint product. We visit the houses, we talk to organisations like the National Trust to find out where the best wallpapers are that we could reproduce. We then visit those properties, we photograph them, we scan them. Often we have small bits of the paper, just fragments, and we have to produce the rest of the paper to how we think it would have appeared. So we take those designs. We then recolour them, we figure out how we're going to print them because there's lots of different printing methods. If it's a Chinese wallpaper, for example, they often come in brighter tones like really bright yellows, which is just fantastic to see those. It's really wonderful to be back at Irving, a house that I so enjoyed when I first joined the Trust but to understand so much more about it a second time round. Now, 35 years on and with hindsight, and having seen that wonderful film from 1973, I realise I was just part of an immense project to continue looking after Irvig after it was saved from that perilous state it was left in. And to see treasures, whether that's furniture original to the house or rather vulgar china pushed to the back of those cabinets, or its precious imported wallpaper from an era when Britain and Ireland wanted to emulate China and everything it stood for. What strikes me is those items so fundamental to the Trust are here at Irvig in their original setting. They are in the rooms they were bought for, stored in the furniture they've always lived in and on the walls they were first hung on. They are there for all to see in their context. And these places speak so much more as a composite work of art rather than, in a sense, as individual things. Treasure in their treasure box. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. Remember, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more audio programmes from the National Trust at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. We'll be back soon with another episode, but for now, from me, James Grasby, goodbye.